Welcome to Tisky Sour, our first one back since Monday's very divisive show. I have to say, some of the the most divided comments we've ever had, not because we discussed anything particularly controversial, but because we talked about the World Cup, which for some of you was a bit too much. If you think we overdid it with the football on Monday, don't worry, we are not talking about the World Cup tonight. Although, I do have to insert it very briefly, because on Friday's show, remember to tune in at 6 instead of 7, because we don't want to clash with the England match, because we think that might give too many of you a difficult decision to make. Tonight with my fellow Tisky Sour host, who is the least interested in football, is Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? Is that correct? I mean, the thing is, I just, I love football gossip and I love international football because like the chaos levels, like even like today, like Japan beating Germany, I love the kind of that, that sort of chaos of it. So I'm I'm cool with international football and I'm cool with any kind of high drama situation, which I feel like the World Cup does give us. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> but at least with, with with Ash or Aaron, at least there's someone on the show who can give a sort of semblance of footballing analysis. I'm not I'm not sure even me or Dahlia can sort of manage that, even if, as you say, we, we I, I'm also quite into the chaos of an international tournament. The Supreme Court has ruled that Scotland can't hold an independence referendum without the permission of the UK Parliament. But Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is nowhere near giving up. She came out fighting at a press conference soon after the verdict was announced. First of all, while I am obviously very disappointed by it, I do respect and accept the judgment of the court. In securing Scotland's independence, we will always be guided by a commitment to democracy and respect for the rule of law. That is a principle, an important principle, but of course it also reflects a practical reality. The route we take must be lawful and democratic for independence to be achieved. And as is becoming clearer by the day, achieving independence is not now just desirable, it is essential if Scotland is to escape the disaster of Brexit the damage of policies imposed by governments we do not vote for, and the low-growth, high-inequality economic model that is holding us back. However, we must be clear today that the Supreme Court does not make the law, it interprets and applies the law. If the devolution settlement in the Scotland Act is inconsistent with any reasonable notion of Scottish democracy, as now seems to be the case, that is the fault of Westminster lawmakers, not the justices of the Supreme Court. So the SNP took the case to the Supreme Court to test whether they could lawfully hold a new referendum on Scottish independence in 2023. The UK government argued that questions of Scottish independence were a constitutional matter and thus a reserved right of Westminster as per the Scotland Act, which Sturgeon talked about just there. But the Scottish government argued that granting a second referendum shouldn't be a reserved power for Westminster so long as it was advisory and not legally binding. The Supreme Court ultimately judged in favour of the UK government. They said the effect of an advisory referendum would still have a practical impact on the constitution of Britain. And so they ruled a referendum without the permission of Westminster would be unlawful. For Sturgeon, that judgment has made the case for independence clearer than ever. This judgment raises profound and deeply uncomfortable questions about the basis and the future of the United Kingdom. Until now, it has been understood and accepted by opponents of independence 
as well as by its supporters, that the UK is a voluntary partnership of nations. The Royal Commission on Scottish Affairs back in 1950 said this, Scotland is a nation and voluntarily entered into the Union as a partner. That sentiment was echoed nearly 60 years later by the Kalman Commission, which described the UK as a voluntary union and partnership. And it was reinforced in 2014 by the Smith Commission, which made clear that nothing in its report prevented Scotland becoming an independent country should the people of Scotland so choose. What today's ruling tells us, however, is that the Scotland Act does not, in fact, uphold that long-held understanding of the basis of the relationships that constitute the UK. On the contrary, it shatters that understanding completely. Let's be absolutely blunt. A so-called partnership in which one partner is denied the right to choose a different future, or even to ask itself the question, cannot be described in any way as voluntary or even a partnership at all. So this ruling confirms that the notion of the UK as a voluntary partnership of nations, if it ever was a reality, is no longer a reality. And that exposes a situation that is quite simply unsustainable. I don't often, as all of you know, quote uh, former Tory Prime Ministers, but I will make an exception today. In the words of former Tory Prime Minister John Major, no nation can be held irrevocably in a union against its will. Indeed, perhaps what today's judgment confirms more than anything else is that the only guarantee for Scotland of equality within the British family of nations is through independence. That fact is now clearer than ever before. So what routes are left for the SNP? This is our last clip of that speech from Nicola Sturgeon. My expectation, in the short term at least, is that the UK government will maintain its position of outright democracy denial. That position is, in my view, not just unsustainable, it is also utterly self-defeating. The more contempt the Westminster establishment shows for Scottish democracy, the more certain it is that Scotland will vote yes when the choice does come to be made. As for that choice, and for the avoidance of any doubt, I believe today, just as I did yesterday, that a referendum is the best way to determine the issue of independence. The fact is, the SNP is not abandoning the referendum route. Westminster is blocking it. And in that scenario, unless we give up on democracy, and again, for the avoidance of any doubt, I, for one, am simply not prepared to do that. We must and we will find another democratic, lawful and constitutional means by which the Scottish people can express their will. In my view, that can only be an election. The next national election scheduled for Scotland is, of course, the UK general election, making that both the first and the most obvious opportunity to seek what I described back in June as a de facto referendum. As with any proposition in any party manifesto in any election, it is, of course, up to the people how they respond. No party can dictate the basis on which people cast their votes, but a party can be, indeed should be, crystal clear about the purpose for which it is seeking popular support. 
In this case, for the SNP, that will be to establish, just as in a referendum, majority support in Scotland for independence so that we can then achieve independence. The Supreme Court judgment against Scotland has turned the question of independence into a deeper question of whether democracy for Scotland is possible inside the Union, a point that SNP MPs pressed again and again in Prime Minister's questions. Since 2014, the Scottish National Party has won eight elections in a row. Last year, we won a landslide. The Scottish Parliament now has the biggest majority for an independence referendum in the history of devolution. The Prime Minister doesn't even have a personal mandate to sit in 10 Downing Street. What right does a man with no mandate have to deny Scottish democracy? Mr Speaker, what democratic right does this government have to deny Scottish democracy, refuse an independence referendum, and to keep us shackled and imprisoned in this involuntary and unequal union against the will of the Scottish people. Just three months ago, this appointed interim Prime Minister said in Scotland, and I quote, we live in a union, which is of course there by consent and by democracy. And added, I accept that. Well, Mr Speaker, by their consent and by democracy, the Scottish people have already voted by a clear majority in the Scottish Parliament to have their say through a referendum on the independent future for Scotland. So it begs the ultimate question, Mr Speaker. Can this Prime Minister tell us if he accepts Scottish democracy? And if so, how that's compatible with today's Supreme Court ruling that clearly exposes the myth that the UK is a voluntary union and is upheld by consent. During the 2014 referendum, we were told that Scotland was an equal partner in a family of nations. Yet the disaster that is Brexit was forced on Scotland against our will, and we see devolution wound back by legislation such as the Internal Market Act. So if the Prime Minister still claims the UK is a voluntary union, can he explain the democratic route by which the people of Scotland get to make a choice over their own future? Mr Speaker, did Scotland vote for Brexit? No. Did Scotland vote for austerity? No. Did Scotland vote for the Tories? No. What we did vote for? Don't shout me down. Don't shout me down. I've listened to all of you. What we did vote for only last year was the right to choose our own future. With that in mind and given a previous non-answer from the Prime Minister, can the Prime Minister tell this House, tell us all in fact how a nation can leave this so-called voluntary union? Mr Speaker, the challenges that we face right now are those that require cooperation between our governments, tackling the economy, supporting the NHS, and I'm pleased that last week's autumn statement means that the Scottish Government will receive £1.5 billion in extra funding to deliver for public services in Scotland, and that's what we will continue doing. And we only played one of Sunak's answers there because they were all pretty much identical non-answers. So where do the Scottish people stand on independence? Well, in the 2014 referendum, 55% voted to stay in the union and 45% to leave. And this graph from Ballot Box Scotland compiles five polls taken by major polling companies since the 2021 Scottish parliamentary election. The percentage of those polled who would vote to leave the union versus those who want to stay in has been pretty much neck and neck. Interestingly, the percentage of those who don't know consistently hovers at around 10%. So that suggests there are plenty of voters to play for if and when 
campaigning begins. Now, I say if and when, if it were a referendum, it's if and when, because we don't know if that will happen. What will happen is the next general election, which Nicola Sturgeon says will be a de facto referendum. Now, Dahlia, it's an interesting one. This I, I, I can clearly see her logic, but how would one hold a general election as a de facto referendum? Because you've got to think, you know, there's a cost of living crisis. The NHS is on its knees. Mm. Does Nicola Sturgeon just answer every question? Because obviously they have control over some of these things as well. Does Nicola Sturgeon answer every question about the NHS? Well, because this is a de facto referendum, I am going to interpret this as a question about what would the NHS be like in an independent Scotland? Or does she say, well, you know, in, in the short term, if we get elected, we will use our devolved powers to do et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, do they not write a manifesto? It all seems, you know, I suppose we can get onto the sort mm. of the, the the political legitimacy of either side, but practically it seems to pose some problems, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that it's a, they looked at the way that the Conservatives won the last election by a complete landslide and are probably trying to take some kind of inspiration from that. You know, if you remember in 2019, that was kind of the tack that the Conservative Conservative Party took, you know, every single question that was asked of them, you know, whether it was on the NHS, whether it was on housing, whether it was on, you know, foreign policy, whatever, whatever question we asked of the government, um, the response that we got was, we need to get Brexit done first, and then we can deal with everything else. And so you had this, this situation where Corbyn had this, you know, incredibly detailed and, and costed and, and thorough manifesto about, you know, how he would run the country. And then the the winning opposition to that was the only thing that's important is getting Brexit done. Once we get Brexit done, we get our sovereignty back. We can do then, you know, the heavens will open and everything will be wonderful. Uh, and I wonder if that's kind of where Sturgeon is taking her inspiration from to saying, you know, any question that's kind of thrown her way to sort of say, well, when we get our sovereignty back, when we et cetera, et cetera, then this is what will happen. I wonder it might not fall as as effectively for Sturgeon, namely because the referendum hasn't actually happened. And so the idea that everything would be pinning on Scottish independence when it's not clear how independence would be won is obviously a big problem there because the Conservative Party was able, you know, Boris Johnson was able to argue for that because the referendum, the, the Brexit referendum had already taken place. It was already in motion. It was a matter of getting the deal, the deal passed. I think that when it comes to, you know, you talked about uh, political legitimacy there. And obviously, you know, this is a legal question. So I can't really speak to the kind of the, the, the legal interpretation. But when it comes to the political context here, I do think that Sturgeon is right in saying that this is counterintuitive and it's counterproductive for Westminster to continue being entirely dismissive of the possibility of an independence referendum, especially at this moment when we can see that, as you outlined, it is pretty uh, neck and neck. Uh, there is no reasonable justification uh, for the political establishment in this party, particularly the Conservative Party, who won their majority in Parliament off the back of this idea of the sanctity of the referendum, the will of the people, et cetera, et cetera, direct democracy. There is no legitimacy for them to be saying that on the one hand, but to be politically blocking a, a referendum just because it seems more likely now than it did in 2014 um, that that referendum would go in a way that they wouldn't want it to go. Um, all that does is really cement this idea 
uh, and make it clear, as you know, those SNP uh, MPs pointed out, that this is not a voluntary union. And it is clear as day that, that England and specifically Westminster make the ultimate decisions um, when it comes to the political direction of the UK. And I think Obviously, the main argument that the Conservative Party uses, you can't just keep having a referendum until you get the desired outcome. And what I would say to that is, well, there's been a very, very significant change that has taken place between 2014 and now. And that is, as was pointed out in the SNP, those clips of the SNP MPs, it's Brexit. You know, Brexit was an overwhelmingly English vote. The Scots are overwhelmingly in favour of staying in the EU. If you recall the 2014 uh, referendum, I think one of the big reasons why Scotland didn't vote for independence was because there was ambiguity about whether or not Scotland could re-enter the EU as an independent state. That spooked a lot of people. And that's, I think that's a reason why a lot of people didn't vote for independence. Now that that has dramatically changed and that actually Scotland would be more likely to re-enter the EU if they leave the, the UK, that is a dramatic enough change in conditions that I think even though the last referendum was not that long ago, I think that that is a good political justification for why there should be another referendum, even if it might not be a, a legal justification, which is what would have mattered in the Supreme Court judgment. Mm, I mean, I tend towards you know, the argument that if they've won a general election and in their referendum is to have another second referendum, you know, I think, you know, prima facie, it seems like, yeah, they they should be able to have one. I don't think there's no arguments on the other side, though, because, I mean, there was a referendum quite recently. It was in 2014. You say Brexit's happened since then. But actually, we're in a relatively, you know, in terms of Brexit, what's the difference between having a referendum next year and having a referendum in a decade? You know, it's it's Mm. not so much like a, a moving object anymore. It's happened. It's in the past. So you, I think the urgency potentially has has gone away a little bit. I mean, obviously it hasn't for many people who are passionate about Scottish mm-hmm. independence. Nicola Sturgeon's gamble is that enough people are that they're willing to sort of risk some sort of political discord. I mean, another thing you mentioned there, I thought it was really interesting, sort of issue learning from Boris Johnson. I think you're right. He did obviously run that general election campaign on principally on getting Brexit done. I mean, he didn't refrain from talking about other things. Obviously, the Tories were constantly attacking the Labour Party for other things in their manifesto. So it wasn't as if they were refusing to talk about anything else. But even when they were talking about Brexit, they had a, it was actually a very impressive advert. Um, they had, a, I remember it was the banner on sort of Google for a couple of days. There were no other adverts on the top of, of Google. And it was saying, do you want politics to end? So it was this very dramatic sort of gorgeous lighting. And it was sort of portraying people having these constant political arguments and they're saying, you know, let's make this stop. We make this stop by having a Tory majority. We do Brexit. We don't have a second referendum. Are you tired of politics? Then vote Conservative. Now, Nicola Sturgeon's argument is going to have to be kind of the precise opposite of that. Are you ready to take on the political establishment and reopen? You know, if Scotland leaves Britain, that's going to be more complicated than Britain leaving the EU. So she's got to sort of tell people this is really worth it. This is really worth this being the top issue in politics for the next five, 10 years, etc. I mean, it seems you know obvious that we have left the EU. Um, but that doesn't mean that Brexit is now a thing of the past because it's still affecting our economy very much. 
there's an interesting part of the Supreme Court's judgment that's worth noting. One of the arguments that the Scottish government made was that under international law, Scotland has a legal right to self-determination, one that trumps UK law. But the Supreme Court disagreed. In 1998, the Canadian government asked Canada's Supreme Court whether Quebec had a legal right under international law to claim independence from Canada. And in its ruling, the Canadian Supreme Court said this. So they said, the international law right to self-determination only generates, at best, a right to external self-determination in situations of former colonies where a people is oppressed as, for example, under foreign military occupation, or where a definable group is denied meaningful access to government to pursue their political, economic, social, and cultural development. In all three situations, the people in question are entitled to a right to external self-determination because they have been denied the ability to exert internally their right to self-determination. Such exceptional circumstances are manifestly inapplicable to Quebec under existing conditions. Now, the British Supreme Court sort of explicitly referred to this, and they used this judgment as a basis for part of their decision over a Scottish referendum. So they said this, quote, in our view, these observations apply with equal force to the position of Scotland and the people of Scotland within the United Kingdom, which is, in effect, the court saying that Scotland wasn't colonised, that it is not a colony or former colony. Dahlia, my position on this is a bit above my pay grade to judge whether or not Scotland was colonised by the UK. I'm not an expert on the Act of Union from 1707. But clearly, you've got two interpretations here. We've got a commenter saying the fact that Scotland can't choose to withdraw from the UK without consent from Westminster proves they are a colony. Then you've got the Supreme Court saying, well, they don't have the right to self-determination because they are not a colony. I don't know if yeah. you fall down on one of these sides or how you can make sense of this. I can't get into the legal wranglings of it. I can just talk about kind of the political framework. And I think for me, when it starts to look like coercion is at play, and I think this particular language of like permission from Westminster, which we know Westminster is an, is an England-centric institution, then it doesn't look good. You know, it doesn't look good for the argument that there is not a, I think calling it like comparing it to like co the kind of colonialism that happened in like India is perhaps a little bit far-fetched. But I think if we're talking about this idea of your right to political and economic, to set your own political and economic program and to have control of your political and economic system, I think it doesn't look good when you have you that fate and that decision being held in the hands of not the elected government that, that you directly elected, which for Scotland is the SNP, but in the hands of Westminster, which is the very institution that we are, that they are trying to break away from. You know, when you are having one state that is trying to break free or become independent from a more powerful state, that will never happen by permission from the more powerful state. That has to be, that power has to be taken. And so actually, if anything, I would say that this ruling does on a political level reinforce that that interpretation and the fact that I think a lot of Scots do feel like they are being ruled by an institution that does not represent them and that the political voice that they made have made clear in so many elections that the SNP have won really with quite a high mandate that they have a right to to feel that way, you know, particularly when you look at things like control over the North Sea oil, when you look at things like austerity, 
these are very tangible and concrete political economic issues that are very central to Scotland, Scotland um, their, their economic and political fabric and position in the world. And I think those aren't directly ruled by Holyrood. You know, those are ruled by Westminster. And so I think that from on a political level, I would probably fall more on the side of the commenter than, than the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, if you're wondering why haven't we got any representatives of the pro-independent parties on this evening, we couldn't quite make the times, the timings work. So we will endeavour very soon to get on some SNP or Scottish Green representatives. Next story. Momentum was formed to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, and it's back in the news. The Guardian have a story with this headline. Momentum in financial peril after left-wing exodus from Labour. Exclusive grassroots group launches fundraiser with membership down a third from Corbyn years. Now, the article goes on to say this. Insiders say Momentum's financial situation is, quote, serious but not critical, affected by the impact of inflation and reduced income through member subscriptions. The Guardian understands Momentum's membership is down by a third from its peak during the Corbyn years, while Momentum source said the group wouldn't, quote, be able to continue to operate at the level we have been unless more donations were found. Now, a story appearing in a national newspaper like this isn't a great sign for any organisation. When a campaign group briefs a story to the press, it's usually to big up their power and influence, not say they're on the brink of collapse. At the same time, it's no big surprise that Momentum is struggling. It's a left-wing faction in the Labour Party, and left-wingers are leaving the Labour Party in droves. So does it have any hope of maintaining its survival, and perhaps even more importantly, its relevance? I spoke earlier to one of Momentum's co-chairs, Hilary Shan. What we're um, using this opportunity to do with obviously speaking to our supporter base is to really talk about all of the successes that we are having in Momentum. We're organising at local government level. We have more socialists elected in local government this year than ever before. You know, we've done some fantastic work in supporting socialist MPs to be reselected, like Zara and Ian. And so there's a huge amount still going on behind the scenes, on the ground, and really also a huge focus, obviously, on building for the future with organisations like Young Labour, Labour Students, etc. as well. I suppose one of the reasons people might doubt that you can have much influence as a left-wing member within the party is they see um, things like Evident Code or Maurice McLeod, people who there is an organisation behind, they're trying to get them to be a left-wing MP for that constituency. Then someone from on high blocks them from standing. And it doesn't really seem like members have any recourse to, to right those wrongs. So you can see why some people might think, what's the point in being part of the Labour Party? Because um, however much we organise, Keir Starmer has complete control of the party or his people have complete control of the party. They hate the left. It's a bit of a lost cause. How would you respond to that? Look, we're realistic. It's an incredibly difficult time in the Labour Party for the left at the moment. We are realistic about that. And it's absolutely disgraceful, the treatment that we've seen in terms of membership being denied their voice um, in local selections. It is incredibly difficult. However, what we've also seen is uh, situations like Ian Byrne, where those 212 socialists that it took to keep Ian Byrne as the parliamentary candidate um, in Liverpool is incredibly important. And that shows why it is so important to stay in the Labour Party um, and to organise and to have that influence. You know, Keir Starmer doesn't own the Labour Party. The Labour Party is all of ours and we have more than our right to stay in it and to keep 
organizing and also to be ready for inevitable changes. We've seen how quickly politics changes now. You know, look at 2015 with Jeremy Corbyn. Look what's happened to the Conservatives recently. And the left is still stronger within the Labour Party than it was in 2015 when the chance to elect Corbyn came along. Um, so we do believe there's still an awful lot to fight for, not to mention, of course, that you've got additional layers of government like local government where socialists are making real change on the ground to their communities. I mean, I'm, I'm the campaign coordinator for Worthing. We took the council for the first time in history this year um, and the changes that are being made to people's lives here depend on the left, quite frankly and have been built around things like community wealth building, which is at the centre of Momentum's work. So there is still an awful lot to play for. And there are councillors associated with Momentum. So I didn't them. Some of our viewers might know. I saw he was in your video. He's um, now Cabinet Minister for Housing in Wandsworth. So, I mean, I, I, I take your point that even if when it comes to parliamentary positions, there's not much hope. Although, as you say, you know, the difference was made when it comes to Ian Byrne. There are other sort of levels of government, let's say. Um, let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, obviously, Momentum was launched to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, sort of against um, a hostile party machine. Jeremy Corbyn now no longer has the whip. There is every chance, I mean, maybe you have inside information, I don't, but it, it seems to me that there's every chance he will stand as an independent in the next general election, be that 2024 or whenever. Um, what would Momentum do in that scenario? I mean, at the moment, we are very much aligned with Jeremy's fight to have the whip restored. That's always where we have been uh, consistent in our messaging. Um, and so we very much believe that we, you know, we're not having that conversation. Jeremy is fighting for the whip to be restored. We are working with him and uh, fighting for him. And it's really important in our minds that we stay committed to that fight and that we are united in our fight to get the whip restored. So we're very much still fighting for that with Jeremy. But I suppose, I mean, hypothetically, I mean, it doesn't seem like he's going to get the whip back if we're to believe the briefings from the top of the party. I mean, I would predict he's not going to get the whip back. So if he doesn't get the whip back and he does stand as an independent, that puts you in an extraordinarily difficult situation, doesn't it? Because if you back him, you could become a prescribed organisation, essentially sort of mass expulsion from the Labour Party. If you don't, then, you know, this is the, the figurehead who your movement was sort of founded to champion. So, I mean, what would you do if that situation does arise? I mean, it is, it's incredibly difficult. And of course, we are operating in this incredibly ruthless and hostile environment. But I think one of the things, you know, one of the many attributes of Jeremy that we all admired so much was his selflessness. And, you know, he was always very clear that it's not about the man, it's about the movement. We were built to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, but we were also very much founded to fight for socialist principles and socialist policies. And so, you know, it is a wider discussion than that. But like I said as well, you know, at the moment, we kind of refuse to accept it as a fait accompli that he will lose the whip because the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn are not just an attack on Jeremy Corbyn. They're an attack on the entire left. They're an attack on all of us. And so it's absolutely vital that all the time that Corbyn is fighting to have the whip restored, that we stay united with him in that fight. So for the time being, as I said, we're, we're just not prepared to accept that that fight is over. You know, he was elected as a Labour MP. He's an incredibly popular constituency MP in Islington North. He's still a Labour member. He absolutely should have the right to stand as a Labour MP again. And that is where the fight is at this particular moment in time. 
So I want to put to you a criticism, or I suppose a, maybe a friendly criticism, I'm not sure, that was in the Guardian article about your financial woes. So it's from James Schneider, one of Momentum's founders. Um, he told the Guardian that Momentum was stuck fighting its corner in the Labour Party and that it needed to direct resources to other left-wing causes in the country. But a critique there to say that you're too Labour-focused. How would you respond to that? We obviously do really believe that the Labour Party is the only game in town, you know, and in order to make uh, effective change, then the Labour Party is an incredibly important tool um, in which to do that. But we also do not say that community activism, socialist um, activism outside of the Labour Party is irrelevant, very far from it. You know, most people that are involved in Momentum, myself included, are community activists, you know, um, help run food banks, charities, whatever that may be involved in climate justice campaigns, you know, there is such a huge wealth of activism out there that we absolutely believe that we, you know, it is not all about activism within the Labour Party. All of us are socialists and we're fighting those socialist causes in in many different ways. However, it is incredibly important, we believe, to stay active in the Labour Party, to organise at the grassroots and to maintain that left-wing base within the party as well. So, yeah, to us, it's, it's very much about combining those things, which is what the majority of socialists do. Finally, um, let's just talk about the extent of your financial woes. Is there a chance that, say, 12 months' time, momentum won't exist? So we're in a critical position, but it's not sort of existential. We we just want to put the message out there that what we're doing is incredibly important, organising on the ground, supporting um, these socialist MPs to get reselected, electing local government, socialists in local government, all of these things, training up socialist campaigners of the future, our future councillors programme, supporting young Labour and Labour students. It all takes money. And so while we're doing an awful lot, if we don't have the resources to do it, we won't be able to keep doing it forever. And so we want to get on the front foot. We want to make sure that the organisation is on a sustainable footing so that we can essentially just keep doing what we're doing. And so that's really the message that we're getting out there is to for members to up their subs by a, a price of a cup of coffee if you can afford it. And if you're not with Momentum already, then, then please do join and, uh, and keep socialism alive in the Labour Party. That was Momentum co-chair Hilary Shan speaking to me earlier today. Let's move straight on to our next story. The Tories are always telling us that asylum seekers should be entering the UK through, quote, safe and legal routes. And no one says this more so than Home Secretary Suella Braverman, who likes to call anyone who comes through any other means illegal. We have already several safe and legal routes through which people who are genuine asylum seekers can make their application. And I'm very proud, as I've set out already, of our record of welcoming people who are genuinely fleeing persecution uh, and war and conflict and human rights violations. However, we cannot accept the situation where people are bypassing those routes, jumping the queue effectively on illegitimate bases and making uh, fabricated claims of being victims. So... There are abundant, safe and legal routes, and anyone who doesn't take them is an economic migrant lying to us about needing asylum. Now, plenty of MPs have tried to pin down Braverman over what exactly those routes are, but she's been pretty good at evading those questions. Until now, that is. Braverman has appeared before the Home Affairs Select Committee, where Tory MP Tim Loughton set her this challenge. Just a bit of role play. I'm a 16-year-old orphan from an East African country escaping a war zone and uh, religious persecution. And I have a 
uh, a sibling legally in the United Kingdom at the moment? What is a safe and legal route for me to come to the United Kingdom? Um, well, we have... Uh, you're fleeing which country, sorry? Any African country. Any African country. Well... It could be any continent, but let's say any African country. I don't want to name one because then their prime minister might have a go at me for demonising their population. So let's just theoretically talk about an African country which is going through a period of turbulence and which is persecuting its citizens, including an innocent 16-year-old like me. Well, we have um, uh, an asylum system and people can put in applications oh. for asylum. How would I do that? Well, you can, um, uh, you can, you can do it uh, through the safe and legal routes that we, we have. We, we have offered 390,000 places uh, to people seeking safety from various countries around the world. I'm not Syrian, um, I'm not uh, Afghan, I'm not uh, Ukrainian, I'm not any of those specific <coughs> schemes. The Dub scheme uh, is historic. What schemes open to me? Well, if you are able to get to the UK, you are able to put in an application for asylum. But I would only enter the UK illegally then, wouldn't I? Well, that, that would, if you put in your application for asylum uh, upon arrival, that would uh, be the, the process that you enter. How could I arrive in the UK if I didn't have permission to get onto an aircraft legally to arrive in the UK? Uh, let me just invite other colleagues if there's anything they want to add. I mean, you, you, you could engage with UNHCR. I mean, depending on which country you're from, you could engage with UNHCR, and that would be a way of, of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of getting um, leave to enter the UK in order to put in an asylum claim. But I accept that there are some countries where that would not be possible. I think the point is that there's a shortage of safe and legal routes other than for specific groups of people that we have generously offered safe haven um, to. It's such an effective line of questioning. We've been saying this for months on this show. I mean, she says this moral, people are jumping the queue if they don't take the proper routes. The proper routes don't exist. And I think that was really, really clear when the moment where sort of you, you could see in Suella Braverman's head, she was sort of saying, do I really have to say this? He's like, how, how would they apply? She says, well, if you were able to get to the UK, you can apply if you come to the UK, if you're an asylum seeker. All the people trying to come to the UK right now who don't already have a right to be here, you know, so most asylum seekers can't just get on a plane and come here because they don't have a visa, Right. The only way to get to the UK is to cross the channel. For billions of people, not billions of people want to come here, but for billions of people around the world, if they want to come to the UK to claim asylum, the only way they can come here is to cross the channel. And then not only will they get, you know, it will take months and years to process their claim and they risk being sent to Rwanda, but what they'll have is Suella Braverman standing up on national television and constantly moralizing and saying, these people should have applied for asylum the proper way. There is literally no other way to apply for asylum than cross the channel and do it in the UK, as she said in that answer. Now, Dahlia, what did you make of that? I mean, I thought that was almost a banal point, but I, it, it sort of showed how effective these select committees can sometimes be, didn't it? Yeah, and I mean, surely this should have been a line of questioning that the press made at the beginning of this Conservative government, in particular in the beginning of, you know, as far back as Preeti Patel, you know, it, I mean, it's incredible. Like well, my jaw honestly hit the floor when she said, once you arrive in the UK, you can make an application for asylum. It was like a real like, oh, is like, it was a real jaw dropping moment because it was like, is this the same woman who has been demonizing people for actually making it to UK shores for taking, as you said, the only available route and accessible route. 
um, to UK shores as a refugee. You look at her predecessor, Preeti Patel, who she is very much in line with um, politically on this on this issue. This, that's someone who spoke about using wave machines in the channel in order to push small boats back. So if you understand that those boats that you are trying to push back into the channel are carrying refugees and not people who are hauling their entire family into, you know, what is often almost a death trap in order to try and seek refuge in a country where they might speak the language or they might have some kind of local community or whatever, um, then you have to accept that it is the position of the UK government, essentially, that unless you come from a specific set of countries, you cannot access refuge in this country, that we do not accept refugees in this country, with the exception of a specific limited number of countries for which there is a specific um, program. So given that, given that it is now clear that Home Secretary, that the current Home Secretary and the previous Home Secretary are aware of that, we can now essentially count out the idea that Britain has this proud history of welcoming and accepting refugees that is obviously ridiculous that and there is no attempt to uphold that 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 alleged history secondly we can understand that the deaths in the mediterranean aren't the result of this kind of decontextualized intervention from a few savvy people tra- traffickers that actually this is a systemically created phenomenon by the deliberate and willful negligence and neglect of our government and finally, we can see that the point of this government um, and the point of previous iterations of this government in particular has not been to create a cohesive immigration system. You know, it's not been to create a process, but rather it's been to create chaos and this ongoing spectacle of violence. You know, we saw this with with Braverman refusing to transfer people to available accommodation and instead keeping them in in Manston, a detention centre that had, you know, public health outbreaks, that had outbreaks of of MRSA and, and was overcrowded and was clearly unfit for human habitation. Her explicitly refusing to offer alternative accommodation, even though that alternative accommodation was available, is clear that this, the, the strategy of this government is to feed and cultivate a sense of chaos at the border in order to then further justify its, its heavy handedness and its ability to project a tough on immigration stance, which, you know, then strengthens their grip on Britain's public consciousness, which it has whipped into the state of frenzy and fear. And so we know, and, and that has just been, you know, completely reinforced by that clip, that that is the function of anti-migrant rhetoric in this country, but by, by this government. But for me, you know, as I said at the beginning, I don't understand why it's taken this long, given that this has been the policy of the government for a very long time to essentially deliberately cultivate a context in which people are having to cross cross the channel in these dangerous and distressing ways and to cultivate the sense of chaos, given that that has actually been the strategy of the government for so long. Where has our press been? Where has our press been when it comes to uncritically reprinting government lines about safe and legal routes, about bogus asylum seekers, about bogus refugees, which has been repeating since New Labour days? Where has our press been on actually asking that simple question of, 
hey, could you just outline to me what the safe and legal route actually looks like in a tangible way? Is it practicable? Is it is it actionable for someone who is fleeing violence or fleeing uh, conflict? Clearly not. And I think that that to me is the real failure here, that, that these questions have not been asked by our press and instead our press has been uncritically reprinting these government government lines, encouraging and pushing the government to be even more hardline and to be even more deceptive on these questions, rather than asking the the kind of like critically interrogating these policies, which fall apart under the slightest bit of pressure, as we could see in that clip. Let's go straight on to our next story. The RMT have announced eight days of strikes over Christmas and the New Year, which is set to grind the railway network to a halt. 40,000 workers are expected to walk out in the latest escalation of their long-running dispute with 14 train operating companies and network rail. The demands of the union concern pay, conditions and job security. Now, the right-wing press are using the strikes as a chance to try and demonise rail workers. The Sun reported on the development like this. Union boss Mick is Grinch. How the Lynch stole Christmas, and then you've got a sort of picture of Mick Lynch mocked up as the Grinch, or characteristically subtle from the sun. And then the Metro have sort of followed that lead. So the Metro have its Mick Grinch, although you can see they have a sort of cheaper graphic design department than the sun have. Speaking to Good Morning Britain, though, Mick Lynch said it was the government, not the union, who were responsible for any disruption. How much long is this going to drag on for? Well, I hope it can be uh, terminated quickly for a resolution uh, with the employers. But the problem at the moment is the Department of Transport and the Secretary of State are blocking the deal. Uh, We were in negotiations intensively after we suspended the last action. And I was told by the Rail Delivery Group, which is the coordinating group, that a deal would be put on the table on Monday. This Monday gone? This Monday this week. And with 55 minutes to go, they phoned me up and said, that meeting is cancelled. We don't want you at the meeting and we're not going to make you an offer. We are not allowed to make an offer. And the only people that can veto that are the government. They're flatly the, den- the government they're are flatly denying this. They are flatly denying, explicitly denying, sticking their spoke into this particular wheel. They say well, it's absolutely a matter between you guys and the employers. Are they lying? Yes, they are. Because in the passenger service contracts, it's explicit, and you can look it up, that the Secretary of State is responsible for industrial relations mm. and he is responsible for their negotiating mandate. The chief person uh, from the Rail Delivery Group, the chairman, said... I will make you an offer. He phoned me personally on Saturday morning. Come to my office at two o'clock on Monday. I will make you an offer in writing. At one o'clock on that day, he said, they're not allowing me to make that offer. Now, people can believe that or not, but it's in those contracts which are in the public domain. He is directly responsible and they have to carry out his instructions. So you're accusing the government of a barefaced lie on this? I am, yes. And you're aiming that at the Transport Secretary? Yeah, and I'll be telling him that tomorrow morning when I meet him. He's responsible for industrial relations. That's his legal responsibility in this country. He directs those companies and he's the only shareholder of uh, Network Rail. What is the current deal? Well, we haven't got an offer at all for the train operating companies. There's no offer in writing. They've put nothing down on a piece of paper. We've shared lots of uh, whiteboard stuff and lots of stuff on screen, but they have not written to us to make us an offer on pay the conditions that they want to change, modernisation. They've not written that down for us to consider. And there's nothing on job security. So according to Mick Lynch, it's the government that are preventing any resolution to the current dispute. And in a separate interview, he explained how the government are enabling the rail companies to remain profitable even as strikes continue. 
I, I calculate that for every striker, the railway industry has lost £5,000. That's a lot of money to be taken out of the industry. Well, it's not being taken out of the industry. The com company is dumping taxpayers' money back into the accounts of the train operating companies. They have indemnified them for every strike we've taken. And the train operating companies themselves have suffered no losses whatsoever. So the money's not leaving in the industry in any sense that you might uh, describe, Simon. A check is being written by Mark Harper, uh, by uh, Grant Shapps and whoever came in between, if you can remember those people. They have written checks directly to Steve Montgomery and Andy Meadows, who I face at the table, and Abellio and First Group and Go Ahead Group, pocket that money and lose no money whatsoever when we're on strike. So the questions have got to be asked the other way around. We're not taking the money out of the industry. We give up our wages. They don't give up their dividends or their profits. They're indemnified for every loss that, the, that is incurred. That's pretty remarkable. Trade unionists are losing their wages when they go on strike, but the rail companies are having any lost profits compensated. The government's hope is clearly that if they protect the bosses but not the workers, they can help the bosses win. Of course, as we're talking about Mick Lynch, it wasn't just the government that got a kicking in his round of interviews. Media elites had a hard time too. Here he is on Good Morning Britain again. So let's just tell it like it is. It doesn't really matter to you what the British public thinks about this. It has no bearing on, on your ability it to... Does. Well, in what way? Because you're, you're disrupting them enormously at Christmas. So you clearly, at bottom, you can't afford to care what they think, otherwise that would stay your hand in terms well, of... Well, we're not cynical people. Our, our members live in these communities. They're ordinary working men and women. They don't get paid when they're on strike, and they make a sacrifice in order to defend their terms and conditions. Across this economy, people have had their terms and conditions included in this studio, ripped to pieces and are on precarious work values, right? They don't get contracts of employment. They don't get holiday pay. They don't get sick pay. They don't get loads of other benefits that you used to get mm. because they're all being made to work on casual employment basis. All right. That's what's happening in this economy and that's what we're defending. And most workers in this country want to see a restoration of that job security uh, and decent terms and conditions. That's a very smart answer. When I first saw that, I thought, what? Is there some controversy about the Good Morning Britain staff that I'm not aware of? Have they had some big dispute that he was sort of cheekily referring to there? As far as, on, as I understand it, there isn't a big public Good Morning Britain dispute going on. But I think the point of that answer was essentially to say, look, Richard Madeley, Susanna Reid, you're coming across quite hostile towards um, workers fighting for their rights. Now, maybe it's difficult for you to relate because you're on very high incomes and people at the top of the tree often have pretty good terms and conditions. But maybe the other people in the studio, the people who aren't interviewing me, but the people who book guests, the people who clean the studio, the people who manage the cameras, maybe these people can relate to us a bit better because the TV industry, like almost every industry, is now filled with casualized workers who aren't getting paid enough. Now, as I say, once you get to the top, if you get to the top of the rail industry, they're also very much uh, treated well, both in terms of pay and both in terms of conditions. But in all other parts of most industries, they're not. And I think that's one of the things that Mick Lynch is very good at communicating. Dahlia, I want your thoughts on this. And I suppose particularly, you know, the extent to which the right-wing papers seem to be really ramping up. I mean, obviously, we, we would never expect The Sun to be sympathetic towards a trade union. But, you know, we're at the sort of literally cartoon villain stage of, of, of the propaganda campaign. What should we make of that? God, Mick Lynch is good, isn't he? Like, I feel like a counter propaganda to this should be like, we should rebrand him as St. Nicholas. Like, if you're going to call him the Grinch, like, actually, he's saving Christmas for the workers. 
But anyway, this is why I'm not in comms. But this is like an incredibly classic anti-union strategy because what the whole like Mick Grinch, you know, ruining Christmas thing, it's essentially just about pitting workers against one another because the vast majority of people who read newspapers are going to be people whose working conditions and whose economic conditions should have a lot more in common with striking rail workers than with the editors of The Sun or the editors of the Daily Mail. And so what they're trying to do there by using these like emotive, this emotive language, this hysterical language, um, and, you know, pinning the blame for all of this failure on Mick Lynch and on the unions. Yeah, it's by trying to pit the workers that read the paper against the workers that are going on strike and trying to prevent any idea that they might have that actually they could look at what's happening in the rail sector and think, maybe I should be doing this in my industry. And it's also obviously about pitting workers against the entire union movement. And, you know, the way that you do that is is not only by this kind of ridiculous caricaturing, but you do it by, and we saw it there when, when Mick Lynch was talking about essentially that the government, his suspicion that the government vetoes the ability for a deal to actually go through, that is a clear attempt to essentially engineer failure through refusal of negotiation and engineer a kind of failure that will be felt very tangibly, not by bosses whose profits are protected, but by the people who use rail services, by other workers. And by heightening that effect and making that effect feel really tangible by deliberately refusing a deal, you then kind of create a situation where people blame their hardships on the union movement and blame their hardships on striking workers. And you're able to then paint the unions as not being in the interest of working class people, as being, you know, selfish or politically motivated or, or whatever, as if, you know, the conservative government aren't politically motivated. And that kind of strategy is very much key to the birth of neoliberalism. And, you know, under post-war capitalism, you did have this, like, at least this theory that, you know, there was a negotiation between capital and labor. Obviously, more often than not, it wasn't a real negotiation, but at least that was kind of the ideological framework in which we were operating. You know, the fact that you didn't have as many laws that you didn't have as many anti-union laws, for example, under the post-war period as you do now was very much this theoretical idea that capital and labor would negotiate with one another and would arrive to deals. And that's how, you know, the kind of pacts between the two would remain stable. Whereas neoliberalism was very much about actually completely destroying the labor movement rather than just trying to overpower the labor movement in those negotiations. It was very much about destroying the very concept of a labor movement. That was you know, key to Thatcher's legacy. That was Thatcher's strategy was to allow and engineer a Con a consistent sense of infrastructural failure, which can then be blamed on the unions and leads to, you know, max exodus from the unions, etc. And and that's what we, we we're seeing happening here. You know, by preventing a successful negotiation where workers can come to and and bosses can kind of come to an agreement to something that they can both live with, um, and we all kind of can move on with our lives. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to create a kind of failure that can be weaponized into divisive rhetoric and into an overall disillusionment with organized labor, with a union movement. And that is very much the kind of long game that the Conservative Party, that the government are playing here. 
the impacts of which are much bigger and go much further than this particular dispute in the rail industry. But it's actually an attempt to curtail the possibility um, that budding and growing labor organizing across lots of different sectors will actually happen. Um, it's an attempt to, to stave off um, what, what is looking to be a, a long few years of, of, of ramped up labor organizing. Um, and I think that that is really what, what this is about here. And the rail workers are simply seen as a kind of sacrificial lamb um, in, in that broader struggle against, against an organized labor movement across different sectors. Because obviously, strike, strike action, you know, the growth of the labor movement, it is happening. It is, it is, we are seeing industries that have never gone on strike before going on strike. Conservative Party, the the establishment are aware of that. And it's very important to them that they win this ideological battle against the unions in order to prevent it getting out of their control. And so that's why they're sort of stepping in to, to block the rail companies make a deal, even if they actually want to. Now we said in that section, um, Mick Lynch was sort of referring to the casualization, which is endemic in so many industries, including the media industry. One place it's not endemic is Navarra Media. I'm happy to say we have some pretty good workers' rights. We're all on the same pay. We kind of practice what we preach, I like to think. And we are hiring. We're currently looking for a head of social media to manage our presence across various platforms. Um, it's a senior editorial role, so we're looking for an exceptional candidate with experience in. If you think that might be you, head to navarramedia.com slash jobs. And I have to say, clearly, you know, that, that job description you saw, I read that. This is from the heart. It's a great place to work. So if you are at all interested, do do apply. One final story, a very short one. Mick Lynch is the king of comebacks. And this week he didn't disappoint. In a media scrum following the announcement of strikes over the Christmas period, a Daily Mail journalist asked Lynch if he was proud to be referred to as Mick Grinch. Here's how he responded. Well, I expect that from, from yourself. That's the sort of quality uh, journalism I've come to expect <laughs> from your particular dark corner of Fleet Street. So you can call us what you want, uh, and you, no doubt you will call us what you want, and you called Mr. Mosley one of the finest things that ever Absolutely. happened, as I remember, when you were back in the black shirt. <laughs> Mr. Mosley, it's Oswald Mosley, leader of the British Union of Fascists. In the 1930s, they looked like a real threat, and it was the male who backed them. Dahlia, I mean, this, is, this was quite a long time ago, uh, but I was still quite impressed with the way Mick Lynch just sort of whipped it out. Well, you bet the back shirt. I mean, what do you make of it? Is it Should Mick Lynch move on, or is he well within his rights to bring up the Daily Mail supporting fascists? He's well within his right because the kind of political angle that the Daily Mail comes from, you know, the, the sick demonization of migrants, it's an incredibly right-wing paper. It's like, it, if it had, like, shifted dramatically away from that tradition and we could say that, you know, the role of the Daily Mail is no longer to foment right wing and far right, you know, tendencies within the British population, then, you know, maybe I could argue that it would have been it would have been nonsensical for McLynch to, to draw up that history. But the point is, is that that historical legacy is still present in the continued existence of the Daily Mail. This is still, particularly when it comes to the dehumanization of migrants, you know, this is the first stage of fascism. This is and this is still the kind of rhetoric and the kind of language that the Daily Mail is peddling in. And so he's completely right to bring up that legacy because the Daily Mail have not outgrown that legacy as much as they might want you to believe. 
the question also tells you a lot about the medium. We, we cut out the question because the sound quality was so bad. But essentially, you've got a Daily Mail journalist saying, are you proud that people are calling you Mick Grinch? Now, uh, the phrasing of that question makes it seem like there are all these rail passengers walking around and saying, oh, Mick Grinch, Mick Grinch. Like, it sounds like a sort of popular grassroots name that, that everyone's given Mick Lynch. Now, who's referring to Mick Lynch as Mick Grinch? The Sun. So you've got the son, that Rupert Murdoch-owned son. Some right-wing journalist has called him Mick Grinch. Then some other mug at the Daily Mail is saying, well, how do you feel about being called Mick Grinch? Like, it, it, it's you who called me Mick Grinch. So you could F off. Which is, I say you, I mean, the son, the Daily Mail, this is the same class of people, same group of people, and they, they're trying to sort of just repeat what each other say until it becomes this sort of popular common sense. Oh, yeah, he's Mick Grinch. I, 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 I beg a Sun journalist to find a single person who calls Mick Lynch, Mick Grinch, who isn't also paid by Rupert Murdoch. It's very pathetic, but thank God we have Mick Lynch to call them out because he does it exceptionally well. Solidarity, of course, with all of the RMT. Um, thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. We'll be back on Friday, not at 7pm, at 6pm because we don't want to clash with the football. So make sure you hit subscribe. Dahlia, it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.